Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. One of the things we've discussed in the past on the Dover Download podcast is programs and operations. In alignment with that, we've talked about our resiliency efforts. Today, we're going to talk about a resiliency effort that I think has been around for a while, more so than we before we called it resiliency. And that is we're going to talk about composting. And joining me today is our solid waste coordinator, Mike Moore, and our resilience manager, Jackson Gaspari. Excuse me, Dr. Jackson Gaspari. Gentlemen, how are you two? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Thanks. So, Jackson, you've been on before. If you want to give a, uh, a short reminder as to uh, who the doctor is in, and then, uh, Mike, I'll ask you, since you haven't been here before, if you want to tell the listener a little bit about yourself. Uh, I always tell people, name, rank, and serial number is one way to go about it. Whole life story is another way. The better way is a little bit of both. Great. Thanks, Chris. So like you said, I'm Jessica Spari, and in my role as Resilience Manager for the city, I work to support our Conservation Commission, Open Lands Committee, and our Energy Commission. And so it's a really good mix of projects within those various spaces, but certainly I get engaged in other resiliency efforts as well, uh, one being composting. I've been with the city in this capacity for approximately uh, two years now, first starting as Resiliency Coordinator, that advancing to a resiliency manager. I've really enjoyed my, my work with the city. I grew up in the area, went to school here. I've mentioned that before. So I have a, have a deep-rooted connection in this community, and this is one of the, the fun subjects I like to talk about with folks. And Mike, you are not two years into your career here. <laughs> no, uh, I've been with the city 35 years this year. I started out when I was 21 in the uh, sewer department and then became an operator at the wastewater treatment plant and started uh, as the solid waste coordinator in October of 2000. I managed the city recycling center, the solid waste program at the curb, um, also have a solid waste committee that I uh, answer to once a month. And any other job that's uh, placed upon me, I try to do my best to get it done. So the question I want both of you to give a little thought to is um, when I say compost, what does that mean to you? Because I think it means a lot of things or it has an opportunity to mean a lot of things. Compost to me is taking organic waste, whether that be food waste or yard scraps and utilizing it in such a way that you're able to return the nutrients to the soil um, and, and apply that compost to either use it for you know, gardening applications or soil enhancement or anything else in, in that space. So it's a good way to be able to you know, cut down on our solid waste stream and uh, reutilize those nutrients. To me, composting is like an opportunity. Uh, to me, it, it's... Uh... It's a word that, like I said, things can be taken out of the waste stream and anything that's in the waste stream that residents are generating that can be reused and, and, and have another usage and end up um, as a fertilizer um, is just a great thing. I typically tell a story. We've been using a, a composter in some form for 
quite a few years at my house. And when it's just my wife and I, which knock on wood is most of the year, we, uh, we put out a 30 gallon bag of garbage every four weeks. Uh, like once a month, we put out a garbage bag because the benefit that we've seen from composting is if all the wet stuff is going in the compost bin, then the garbage is actually not that you, you can let it sit for a, a month because it's not the stinky, smelly stuff that you want to get rid of. And between that and recycling and sort of avoiding buying some things that you have no use for, it really has cut down. And I know people focus on it as an environmental, and I'm not trying to, to diminish that, but I think there's a another level of it that it, it can help offset, especially, Mike, as we look at the lack of a market for our recyclables in a lot of ways, composting to, to prevent things from going in to the, the waste stream to make room for what's, what might be going there that we didn't want to go there. No, definitely. Um, you know, the more people that are, can utilize a, a backyard composting system like you're doing, the better. And, and you're right, it is, it is the heavy stuff. It's the stuff that can have an odor to it. And you can reuse that as fertilizer. And you're right, you can, um, you can cut down on the trash bags you're using. And if you're using, doing composting yourself, you know, maybe you can save a little money, not buying as many bags, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing, too. And, and I should be clear, um, although I wouldn't mind doing backyard, my wife would. Uh, so we do, we either bring stuff to the, the Mr. Fox bins at, okay. at the uh, recycling center, or uh, we've done the curbside as well. The food waste containers at the center have, have been very successful. I was, I was running some numbers on them, and... and um, on an annual basis, we're getting rid of 55,000 pounds of food waste just with those seven toters that we have, each one of them 65 gallons, and um, they're full weekly. I could actually have no problem putting two or three more in there, and they'd be, they'd be utilized. Uh, people have been real happy that it's been there, and I'm glad we could provide it. Is there a certain point where we, we look at the cost-benefit of adding more toters versus eliminating all of the toters there or minimizing, maybe going back to two toters there, but then promoting a curbside service instead? Is there a, is that something we should be looking at? It's something I've looked at. You know, I don't want to turn this into a, a solid waste and trash conversation, but they, they both... Uh, it's an integral conversation. They are. They are. We're going through a feasibility study right now on solid waste and recycling at the curb, how that's going to be handled. Um, one of the things that's at the forefront of that is possibly switching from a bag and tag program to a toter-based program. I, I believe that would need to happen first, but once you get uh, toters for trash and recycling, I would like to see a yard waste toter, and I, I would love to be able to offer our own food waste toters curbside that we give to residents free You know, in the long run. That's what I would love to see. Uh, but we, I, I believe we've got to get to a toter-based system first just for trash and recycling. So you mentioned yard waste, and, and that's where I was leading. We've been doing yard waste collection, composting, and that for decades. And it's a little bit different in the sense that it's mostly clippings, I would assume, like lawn clippings and, and uh, after storm pickup and things like that. But you must see that demand still be 
being pretty high. It, it is it is very high. I, I don't think people really know the volume uh, that we take in. We also service the town of Madbury, which is, is a small community, but between Dover's population and Madbury's, you're talking about a population of almost 40,000 people. On an annual basis, we'll take in 11 or 1,200 tons of yard waste. And and these cans are, are packed very solid by us. We've weighed them on occasion on our scale. So that number of 1,100 tons or so is very accurate. Like you said, we've got a lot of data over the years that I've kept track of. I need to give those numbers to the state annually. So I keep, uh, keep a log of that. And that's just grass clippings and leaves. And that's really all it is, some flower, uh, you know, plants and things like that. But it's a lot. And what you're looking at is usually around 400 tons will come in during a six-week period in the fall. We'll have about 150 tons picked up curbside uh, by the contractor during the fall. And then the rest of the year is the rest of it spread out. So we, we take in a huge amount as everybody probably knows, that might be listening over the six weeks in October and November. I always find as someone that brings stuff in the fall that inevitably once the snow is cleared, you, you realize all the piles you didn't get at your house. That's right. And, and then you've got the spring cleanup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, that's what usually happens. We'll, we can gauge the, uh, the leaf pickup and the yard waste based on when it's going to snow. You know, we know that if it snows early, then the spring is going to be a lot busier. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a volume of yard waste. It really is. Jackson, how do the two interplay? How do yard waste and food waste intermix, or do they not? I think they do intermix in, in a certain sense in that you're, you're diverting both of those from a waste stream that, that's going to have impacts in terms of uh, carbon emissions, um, in terms of cost to the community, but certainly they play, you know, a different role, I think, in the actual composting process, depending on the content. Uh, organic waste in landfills, you know, generate methane. That's a really potent greenhouse gas. And so by composting, it's estimated, you know, you could reduce those emissions by a pretty significant amount because 10% of all U.S. emissions are attributed to food waste. Uh, alone. So that's not even including, you know, reusing yard waste. However, you know, there's other benefits as well, right? So if you utilize your compost um, as a fertilizer, that's also reducing your need for relying on chemical-based fertilizers, which can have negative environmental implications. And when you talk about things like stormwater runoff, which is obviously a big issue um, that we're trying to address here in Dover, uh, using, you know, more organic uh, nutrients can eliminate some of the other chemical fertilizer components that could have negative implications on our, our water bodies, as well as, you know, aiding in just uh, soil health, even in your yard. You know, my wife and I, we we will use our compost just locally in our garden bed and, has, and it's worked really well. One thing that I, I found fascinating, it's probably old news to you two, but I, I recently learned that on the food waste side, it's human food waste that if you have a pet, you should not put your cat food, dog food, et cetera, into the compost. You know, what they don't eat, you shouldn't put in the compost because the chemical additives and the potential uh, medicine that might go in you know, to help uh, an animal's um, physique, I guess, or digestion, what have you, that those things are not 
good for fertilizer, et cetera. And I, I never would have thought about it. I didn't, hadn't, don't think we've done it at home, but I had not put two and two together. It makes perfect sense, but it was not something I, I, I hadn't thought that food waste is human food waste. Yeah, and and it's interesting too when you look at you know the food recovery hierarchy that the Environmental Protection Agency puts out. It, composting is super vital, but it's almost like you're far down the chain in what you're trying to sort of eliminate, right? So do you start with source reduction and that we, you should be trying to make sure that you're not having extra waste in the first place, right? That's where that's where the process really starts. And then when you go down the line, it's like, okay, are you able to use that extra food to feed hungry people or to feed animals or to utilize it in some way so it's not even hitting a waste stream? But before you get to the waste stream, that's when compost plays a really key role. And I'm really happy to hear that Mike mentioned that we're getting really high utilization at those bins at the recycling center. So the old adage, take only what you need and eat what you take. That's right. <laughs> Mike. That program with the the food waste has been going on for we're in our second year. Uh, yeah, I was. It's March was uh, this last March was the completion of the first year. So yeah, a year and a year and a half or so. And I know that you mentioned the the amount, the quantity that you've taken away, but I have to assume that you might have assumed there was going to be utilization did it ramp up or was it an instant uh or or has it been a little slower up to once we got the word out and used all the media sources we had to get the word out it was there were a lot of calls coming in a lot of interest and and um i think we started out with five bins just not sure how it was going to be utilized but it seemed like uh once a month i was saying i i need another another (laughs) bin So, uh, and like I said, I could, I could easily get three or four more and I, and I'm sure they'd be utilized. It's, it's money well spent. Have you seen a similar ramp up on the yard waste and the the leaf waste? Do we, does that, has that fluctuated over time or has that been pretty steady? It's, it's ramped up. I, I believe when I first, when I first started the job, we were around 600 tons for the year and we're around double that. Now, it basically, if I keep looking back on my on my state reports, it'll go up 50 tons or so every year or two. I mean, it certainly isn't decreasing. Um, just like the brush, you know, we talk about yard waste, but and what can be composted brush, of course, cannot, but it's, it is being reused. We're getting that chipped up, and, and that's another 1,000 or so tons a year. And, and just like the yard waste is ramped up, the brush has as well. It's just, you know, more population. There's another 14,000 people here than when I started. All the numbers, the recycling center showed that. So we don't process either. We collect it, but we don't process it, correct? There's a mm-hmm. vendor that we deal with in both sides. In both situations, correct. Yeah, we would need a, a change to a, per, a state permit if we were going to start doing that. There'd be a lot of other hoops to jump through if, if we weren't just passing it along. Um, collecting it and then and then moving it to another location. So we provide the service to the property owner and resident, and then someone comes in, takes the bins, or do we deliver? Once a week, uh, Mr. Fox composting comes in and um, and dumps the bins for us as far as the food waste goes. The yard waste we've always hauled with our own containers to whoever the vendor is at that time. 
what do those vendors do with it? Do, do they, is the, the food waste, is it then cultivated into compost or is there? It, it is. It is. Yeah. In both the soil amendment, I guess is the proper term. Yeah. In both situations, there's a, the place we're bringing our yard waste to is mixing it with a combination of the yard waste and some loom. And it's being made into a very, very good product that the problem with some of that, of us doing it ourselves, is it's very, it's just labor intensive. You need the spot to do it. You need heavy equipment. Uh, you need operators to do it. I'm not sure who is offering composting training, but I do know the University of Maine used to have a week-long program okay. on composting. I would want to make sure I attended something like that. Just over the years, I've learned a lot, but uh, there's always more to learn. It'd be great if we could do that ourselves at some point it's, it would just be a pretty major change in operations on, on both ends of that have you talked to uh, i'm going to presume facilities and grounds in the sense that if we had this soil amendment we can use it on our own fields and is that what you would look to do with the um the outcome i i'm not sure if we could use it up use enough um, I think we could do a, a multitude of different things with it. We could certainly use a portion of it, but, you know, maybe we could, uh, we, of course, we'd offer it to residents. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe other municipalities or, or you know, who knows what we could do with the rest. But, you know, for a small community, it makes sense because they're maybe they're not going to generate as much. It's not going to be as labor intensive. Right. But for a community like, like Dover, it, it, would be a, um, it would be a major operation. Not in a bad way, but it just... It just would. Right. There's complexities to it. And, and I think the, the biggest one, like you said, is the, the permitting and having the space to set it up, create the, uh, the opportunity, and then to actually see it through. Jackson, I'm wondering, the resilience, citywide resilience plan, does it contemplate composting and, and how does that fit in? Yeah, there is a section uh, related to sort of food systems in general in the resiliency plan. Um, and we've we've worked with uh, Aaron Vesigio in the planning department as well at our outreach coordinator on creating uh, some various green tip sheets for different subjects, one of them being composting. So we have a nice succinct one-pager through our webpage and also available in City Hall that folks can pick up. Has some information on the program that's running over the recycling center with the drop-off locations, as well as residential services folks can take advantage of, and some tips and a link for how to do this yourself at home also. Um, but we talk about the fact in the resiliency plan that, you know, there, there are some real issues with our, our way that we get food in this region in general. Food on average travels 1,500 miles from farm to plate and most grocery stores have less than five days of food supply on hand. So people are very used to having access to reliable sources of food. And it's a little bit different conversation than composting in general, but I think it plays into the fact that we really need to be thinking more about our food systems and the way that we're utilizing those nutrients in, in our local community because they are so valuable to society in general. And, you know, if we can include consumer strategies like supporting local food production through local farms, um, reducing food waste at the source and composting, then we can really increase the resilience of our resiliency of our community uh, overall. 
I think this is an ongoing conversation, and I hope you both come back in the future as we continue to evolve our composting efforts and, and look at different ways to provide that service in an efficient manner. I'm wondering, are there any takeaways you want to share with the listener as we wrap up? Well, I, I just want to say that, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're a city official, um, you're always looking at, at money and you're always looking at what's the most cost effective way to do things. And sometimes you should be doing them just because they're the right thing to do and they have the, the environmental factor to it. You know, and, and if we started our own composting program here and, and ramped up those efforts a little bit, there would be an initial cost to that. But I think the overall value uh, over the years would, would more than pay for itself. And, um, and I'd love to see Dover be a leader in, in, uh, in taking that on and, and starting to utilize and, and make their own compost at some point. Jackson, that sounds like an, a uh, revision to the resilience plan. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that um, Mike is so gung-ho about this idea, and I hope eventually one day we can offer that residential curbside pickup system. That would be awesome. I've heard from multiple community members that they'd be really interested in the city doing something like that. I know there's a lot of logistical challenges that we'll have to overcome to get there, but I'm sure the talented staff in the city of Dover can eventually figure that out if it's uh, a worthwhile effort. Why don't we end on that note? Thank you both for coming in today. I appreciate the information and the insight. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having us. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. This week in 1951, Dover, along with the rest of the country, attended the premiere of the film The Whistle at Eaton Falls. Produced by Louis de Rochemont. The film starred Lloyd Bridges, Dorothy Gish, and Ernest Borgnine in his first film, for Dover, the premiere was a proud moment. Much of the movie had been filmed in Dover, as well as locations in Portsmouth and Exeter. The whistle at Eaton Falls revolves around a strike at a small plastics factory, depicting the tensions between the workers and management. The Rochemont, who lived in Newington, used Dover and other seacoast communities as the backdrop for the fictional Eaton Falls. The film's vivid portrayal of a factory town's dynamics offered a window into a world that was already familiar to many in Dover and the surrounding seacoast communities, whose mills drove their local economies for many years. The lower mill of the former Sawyer Mills complex, now home to Bellamy Mill Apartments, serves as a key location in the film. It's a location de Rochemont seemed to like. His 1952 film, Walk East on Beacon, which chronicles the pursuit of communist spies by an FBI agent, also uses Sawyer's lower mills as a backdrop. The Whistle at Eaton Falls also used the Grand Sawyer Mansion as a location for the factory owner. The mansion then stood where Burger King is located today. Although Whistle at Eaton Falls features a great cast, it's worth noting that de Rochemont also cast local talent for bit parts and hired locally for some production work. Despite the film's success, The Whistle at Eaton Falls almost disappeared completely. For many years, the film was only available on private and archival 16mm copies, most of them incomplete. A poor quality version of the film would air occasionally on Turner Classic Movies, and even worse quality bootleg versions of the film were available on DVD. In 2011, the film was rescued from the archives when Ernest Borgnine was selected for a Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award. Thankfully, that led to the film being meticulously restored, a process overseen by the de Rochemont estate. 
De Rochemont would continue to be well-known locally. By the 1950s, he was living in Newington, but wasn't only known for his connection to Hollywood. De Rochemont is also remembered for leading the regional, but unsuccessful charge in opposition to the construction of Peace Air Force Base. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.